The Canucks somehow managed to pick up two points on the road in San Jose. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who of course also covers the team for the Athletic Canucks Hour, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. We are, we are live here at Rogers Arena where the Canucks are on the ice for a practice after that 5-4 overtime win in San Jose last night and there's a lot of different adjectives you could use to describe that game and that performance from the Canucks transfer but one of them just that popped into my head immediately after the end of the game last night was goofy that was just a goofy goofy win but like after the first period you could be excused if you thought it was going to be a walk in the park for the Canucks maybe they thought it was going to be because the the contrast between the no the contrast between the first 20 minutes and the remainder of that game and how it played out was stark and just one of the more kind of baffling disappointing consecutive periods in the second and third I thought from the Canucks that we've seen in a while the second and third period looked like that one nothing loss they had in Calgary where they somehow got a point out of the game but just generated absolutely nothing that's what that the last latter Two periods of the contest looked like. Eight shots in 39 minutes. I mean, it wasn't an acceptable effort. And Bruce Boudreaux said post-game, and, and I, I was like, amen, testify, Boudreaux, when he said it. Uh, it was in response to my question. He said, you know, the thing that got to me was our lack of composure, right? And and the, the goal that opened the scoring for San Jose to me, that change was inexcusable. That shot selection at following a really good shift changed the entire complexion of the game. And that was just lazy. You know, it's one thing to get beat. It's one thing to get unlucky, right? It's one thing for, you know, a team to come out heavy and pester you. That was just the Canucks aiming a Gatling gun at their feet and shooting. And it was just so lazy. I hated that goal against. It changed the entire complexion of the game. From there, it was a special teams issue. And, you know, a lot of what we saw last night felt like the first 25 games for this team, right? Yep. The penalty kill crushes them. The power play, actually the power play was worse than it's been at any point in the season, to be totally honest with you. The five-on-five game, there just wasn't enough attack there by any means. The only difference is that this time the Canucks pulled it out, right? Like, that was the only difference. And, you know, that's that's an unfortunate way for for this team to hit their 50-game milestone, even though they finally managed to reel off consecutive wins for the first time and in four I said weeks. this, I was doing the intermissions with Bick last night during the game, and the Canucks are not a talented enough or good enough team to take their foot off the gas, even when they're up 2 nothing against a team like San Jose that was just absolutely dismal in that first period, right? And that's part of the conversation here, is that the way San Jose played, the Canucks were full value to be up 2 nothing after the first period. They dominated the Sharks in that opening 20 minutes, but they are not a team that can coast for the rest of the way and get by on talent, even against the Sharks. And I thought what you really saw, and, and you know, Bruce Boudreaux called it a lack of composure, was after they had the goof up and the, the lazy play, the lazy change from Besser and Horvat that allows the Sharks to get back into that game, they weren't able to flip the switch and get back into that higher gear and start immediately outplaying the Sharks again. Like, I think a more talented team could, right? Like, if that's Florida or Carolina or Tampa or whoever... 
you know, Vegas, Colorado, and they give up a bad goal and a lazy change, you've you got a pretty good idea that they're going to immediately come back out in a higher gear and reassert control of that game. And the Canucks just, for the rest of the game, they couldn't get back to being clearly the better team, which just, you look at it on talent, on paper, they should have been able to find that gear, and they weren't able to do it. Special teams, I mean, I was pulling my hair out to a certain extent watching the Canucks special teams. We, we all know the penalty kill. You know, Sharks go two for three on the power play. It's been better under Bruce Boudreaux, but it's still a major the liability. Power play? Sorry, the penalty kill. Okay. Because the power play has not been the better. Power I, know play. The, I know the percentages are there, but the power play is you, – and you know, I've been guy who says power play will be better yeah. the whole season. The last 15 games have significantly dented my confidence. I actually now expect the Canucks power play to be among the league's worst from from now to the end of the season. And, uh, you know, that's that could change if they just stop doing some of the wild personnel stuff we're seeing. But right now what we're seeing from the Canucks power play is deeply, deeply concerning. And I think it's going to cost them points if they don't change up their approach rather rapidly. And I thought that was one of the biggest takeaways from last night is just how lost and how flat the power play Ugh. looks right now. And, and you just Appalling. think about, okay, we heard from Jim Rutherford yesterday on this station with Hofford and Bruff, and a pretty clear statement of intent, right? We want to stay competitive while we reload for the future for you know a couple of years down the road, but we want to keep enough good players to keep winning games. And I just look at it, the way this team is currently set up, and we'll see what happens going into the deadline and what they look you know, for the rest of the year and going into next year. But the way this team is currently set up, special teams is kind of the low-hanging fruit for keeping this team competitive, right? Improving where the special teams are currently at is the easiest path to making this team more competitive in the short term. Because right now, the PK is absolutely dismal, and the power play, you know, for the entire year is about middle of the pack. But I think you could make a pretty good argument that kind of overstates it. As you said, you would expect it to underperform that number for the rest of the year, and you know, the power, the penalty kill is one thing because there are questions about personnel in addition to questions about strategy and tactics and all that. But the power play, I still look at this, and I still look at the personnel and the players and the talent they have available to them on the power play. This should not be a middle-of-the-pack team. This should be a legitimately strong power play at the NHL level. And, you know, I thought Elias Pettersson actually played a really good game 5-on-5, five five, right? He looked sharp. He looked decisive, creative, dangerous, all of that. But then for whatever reason, he gets it on the power play, and none of that is evident. And there just has to they have to find a way to unlock the skill they have available with the man advantage and turn it back into a dangerous unit. If the goal of this team and this managing group is to remain competitive, even in the course of making big changes and reloading for the future, you have to find a way to improve both of these special teams units because they're just not getting the job done right now. No. Well, and, I mean, the, the, the thing is is that the – Penalty kill, I don't think, has the personnel to do it, right? So That's fair. In the first 25 games of the season, we all know what happened, right? 63% penalty kill percentage. This was the worst team uh, we've seen on the penalty kill in, in a long, long time. Since then, 75%. Hey, since Bruce Boudreaux got hired, the Canucks are 23rd in the league by penalty kill percentage. 23rd! And, and while that's not good by any means, by any means is that close to good enough, the fact of the matter is is that going from historically bad to baseline below average, right? Well below average. To a normal bad penalty to kill. To a normal bad penalty kill is a massive, Huger. massive improvement. And when you peel back beneath the results, right? When you peel back beneath the results, there are meaningful signs that the club has improved their penalty killing, right? The club is surrendering fewer shots against. They're surrendering 
still surrendering far too many chances. And and a big part of the story too is is unfortunately luck and goaltending. And and so nonetheless though there are signs of durable meaningful improvement four on five for this team. And that means a ton because in the first 25 games, do you know do you know how many PK goals they surrendered in the first 25 games of the oh, season? I don't even want to. It's 29. <laughs> it's 29. In the in the most recent 25, it's 15. Now a big part of that story is that they had a 790 save percentage on the sh- on the pe- penalty kill in that first 25, and they're back up to 850 now. But nonetheless, penalty kill durably improved. Now the power play, the power play has been a sleeping giant for most of the season. In the first 25 games, they were averaging an elite shot rate but they were only converting on 10% of the power play shots they took. Since then, they're converting on 17% of the power play shots they're taking, but they've gone to a bottom five shot rate. So, you you know, you might want to say more efficient, except that a lot of those bounces came before some personnel changes that we've seen the last 15 games. And since those personnel changes were made, you know, with, with two defenseman sets and a spread formation on power play, power play 2-1 game, um, you know, Tyler Myers on the flank for some reason, right? Since, since those changes have started to be made, the Canucks have become one of the worst penalty, uh, one of the worst power play teams in the league. I'm really nervous now. I'm really nervous that unless something changes, unless they go back to what we kind of know works, unless they try something like finding a way to shoehorn Garland into the top unit, you know, getting Besser back on the flanks, like unless they do some of the obvious things here, this power play has a chance to really harm them over the last 32 games. And that, again, I just keep coming back to the fact that shouldn't be the case, right? This sh- the power play should not be a liability for this team. And maybe it is a case of just getting back to basics, right? Just getting your five best players, and it's pretty clear who those five best players are. We know they've had success as a power play unit before, even, it's been, even if it's been in starts and uh, stops and starts, you know, over the last couple of seasons. But... Maybe that's the solution, just getting back to basics, get your five best guys out there and let them do their thing. Because, again, you just look at what's going to be the winning formula for this team, not just for the rest of the season, because obviously we're starting to look beyond and trying to figure out what the vision and what the roadmap for the team is in the future. And if you're going to have Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes as building blocks of your team, right, and that's certainly, you know, if you read between the lines, every indication is that's what this Canucks management group is indicating – if those guys are going to be building blocks on your team, you should be a dominant power play, or at least a very, very good power play, because those guys have the skill set to lead a very good power play. So it's the kind of thing with the penalty kill, okay, you have to go out and you probably have to find some new guys to help in that respect in the summer going into next year. Oh, yeah. But the power play, you have the pieces in-house right now to have a dangerous power play unit. Bruce Boudreaux was brought in in part because he's a – you know, he, he can get young offensive players to reach their potential. That's always going to involve power play success. That's yeah, but, one. Of, but he's not the power play. No, that's fair. Right? Like, the Anaheim Ducks power play that was so good, um, you know, when they went to all those righties, uh, for example, like, that mostly, that evolution of their team, like the team that had the 3 nothing comeback against Edmonton, you remember that game in the playoffs? That was most. That mostly happened after Boudreaux left. The 1-3-1 that the Washington Capitals used to change the NHL. That was an Adam Oates construction. That happened, you know, after Boudreaux, after Mark Hunter, Adam Oates came in and they became, you know, this elite power play group. Um, And that's been durable. So, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that Boudreaux's specialty is the power play. By the way, I just want to note, Tanbeer notes that, um, of course, you two are going to focus more on the negative. And he wants us to say that the Canucks won the game. Of course they won the game. 5-4, overtime win. And after the game, Connor Garland called it a wake-up call 
Bruce Boudreaux said he he was concerned about the club's composure. And more than anything, we are now watching Canucks practice the day after they arrived late in the wee hours of the morning yesterday in Vancouver. No better sign of the coach's dissatisfaction than the fact that the Canucks are on ice today. This yeah. is a this is a surprise. Like I woke up to a text from you, Jamie, saying I'll see you at the rink, and I thought, what? I I was sure. I was certain that today was going to be a day off looking at the schedule. The fact that this team is skating tells you everything you need to know. If you think if you think our take on the Canucks win is negative, Bruce Boudreaux is way madder about it, way more critical with his players than we are, and I know because I'm watching them skate. And here's the thing. We all know, and Bruce Boudreaux said this, every coach says this, there are games where you lose but you play really well, and there are games where you win but you don't play well at all. That was a game where the Canucks won, but they did not play well. They did not acquit themselves well after the first period against the San Jose Sharks. And again, that's not just coming from us. That's most definitely coming from Bruce Boudreaux as well. As you said, just the fact that they're out here on the ice after getting in late last night from San Jose uh, on the ice at Rogers Arena practicing tells you a lot about what you need to know uh, about how Bruce Boudreaux feels about this, uh, about that performance last night. Now, speaking of practice here at Rogers Arena right now, there's uh, some interesting notes about how the forward lines set up, and no big surprise. Uh, well, here I'll, I'll run through some uh, some of the permutations uh, here that you tweeted out. So it's Miller, Horvat, and Besser. So that stays together. Pedersen playing with Pearson. And Garland, which is a bit of a different look, although we but, saw it at times. Yeah, that's last how they night. ended the game. Last yeah, night. saw it at times last night after the the Pod Colson, uh, Pedersen, Hoaglander line was split up. Pod Colson with Dickinson and Chase on, and Chase on and Hoaglander are rotating in there, and then the Highmore Lamico Mott line. So really, as we know, Highmore Lamico and Mott are going to get their minutes. So Pod Colson, Dickinson, Chase on sets up as your fourth line, and Hoaglander uh, looks like he could potentially find himself out of the lineup again on Saturday against the Anaheim Ducks. Now, I think I am curious to see the Pedersen and Garland duo, whether it's with Pearson, Pod Colson, whoever ends up playing there. I'm curious to see that duo get some run together because, again, I thought Pedersen was a bright spot for the Canucks last night. I thought he looked really sharp. He ends with a couple of assists, makes a nice play on the JT Miller game winner. I think that now that Pedersen has started to regain his stride and find his form, that's something that I want to see more of a look at, to get Garland a chance to play with Pedersen when Pedersen is closer to the top of his game than he was when they when they had some chances earlier in the season together. Yeah, I didn't really think they had a ton of chemistry last time out, right? I mean, when you look through their performance together, they've both been better apart this season than they have been with one another. Um you know, now that said, at five on five, Garland and Pedersen have played 200 minutes together, and the Canucks have outscored their opponents in those minutes. But they haven't generated goals at a really high clip. Uh, you know, Pedersen's been better, for example, with Brock Besser. Um, you know, certainly with Vasily Podkolzin. So we'll sort of see how it evolves. I don't know that they had a ton of chemistry or a ton of feel, like a ton of good feeling. As a, as line mates last time out, we'll see if they can do better. And then and then you put Pearson on their wing, and that's just a straight line player. Um, that's going to be a big challenge for him, I think. Right? You got to do the yeoman's work and play the heavy yeah. press role with two guys who do not play in straight lines at all. I don't know that Pearson's best suited to that spot. Um, I, I might be interested in seeing Pod Coles in there. I, I might be interested in seeing them task him with being that puck retriever, that that battle winner. But but I would note. 
I don't know that Pod Colson's been like his game hasn't been so assertive that he's like pounding down the door for that opportunity, right? Uh, if he could, if he'd been sort of stronger the last ten games, and I just don't think like I haven't seen a lot of those big hits or those big battle. You know, like the thing I see a lot of from Pod Colson is a lot of intelligent play, right? And occasionally he rips off that unbelievable shot, and you're like, oh boy, oh man, but. In terms of that physical side of the game, in terms of the assertive two-way ability that he has, I don't know that he's been absolutely on top of his game of late. So I don't know that he's earned that shot. But I don't love that line's calibration, to be totally honest with you. I really think that that's a better fit, ultimately, for Pedersen than Hoaglander and Pod Colson because Hoaglander and Pod Colson are playing fourth-line minutes these days. So you can't have the guy who led the Canucks in even strength ice time against San Jose and was their best player, in my in my mind, over the course of the full 63 minutes or whatever it was. You can't have him playing with fourth-line wingers based on deployment, right? You need to have him play with guys who are going to see the ice a lot. That said, Garland didn't play more than 10 minutes either. So, at 5-on-5 five five anyway. So, I, I mean, we'll, we'll sort of see where it goes. This team needs to ramp up Garland's usage. I'm going to be honest with you. Garland has been... Their best and most dynamic five-on-five offensive player this season. Not close. It's not really that close. And so, you know, finding ways to get him involved on PP1. Finding ways to up his ice time five-on-five. Especially in the event that you're considering moving a guy who's been so good for you in his first year here. You got to see what it looks like if you're giving him a top-line opportunity before you make that mistake. Don't let another team... Try that and have it work. Find out the... Don't let another team find you out Garland's find that ceiling. Out. You find that out. you got to find that out before before you make that move. I'd like to see that. If there's sort of one thing, one recommendation, one thing I'd really like to see between now and the deadline as the Canucks work through what decisions they want to make, it's it's give me more Garland. Well, and that's ultimately what I like. And, and you know, your, your points about the chemistry and the style of play, that's fair. But at least with Pedersen and Garland together, both players have a chance to potentially get big minutes. Because not that Hoaglander and Pod Colson were weighing down Pedersen's ice time, because, look, Boudreaux would just split that line up, and, and Pod Colson and Hoaglander would see their minutes decrease, and Pedersen would still find a way to get his. But at least now, when you look at it, how it's set up, the players that should be getting more ice time, that should be getting top six minutes, are playing together, and the guys that Bruce Boudreaux clearly is not particularly comfortable playing are all on the same line together, right? Pod Colson, Dickinson, and either Chason and Hoaglander, that's going to be your fourth line because we all know what the Highmore Lamico Mott line has done. They've stepped up, they're going to demand their minutes. That just shrinks the other, uh, you know, the, the minutes gonna, that are available check, for other bottom six teams. They're going to check Getzlaff and Terry tomorrow. Exactly. And last night, oh at, boy. at even strength, <laughs> last oh night, boy. At even strength, Hoaglander, Dickinson, and Pod Colson were the low men in terms of ice time for the Canucks. So it makes sense. Look, if you're not comfortable playing those players, if you don't want to have those guys out there for big minutes, put them together. Then at least you're not switching Pedersen's line mates in the flow of the game because you're you know you're not comfortable playing his two wingers. So I I agree with you that they need to see more from Garland. I think putting him with Pedersen is a good step in that direction because the way Pedersen's playing, you need to find minutes significant minutes for him as well, which, to be fair, Boudreaux has been doing recently. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, the Dickinson, the rebuild Dickinson thing, right? Like, he was the player who initially got the biggest bump in minutes when Boudreaux took over. And now it's like Lamico has completely supplanted him in the lineup, um, which, you know, is, is similar to the process we're seeing unfold on the defense, where, I mean... 
can you honestly tell me if Pullman was healthy that both Pullman and Hamannick should play over over Shen? Burrows and Shen? Yeah, no, no chance, no. right? Would anyone make that case? No, no, no chance, right? Uh, uh, the so you're seeing that play out up front too. Um, and now Dickinson's back to playing fourth line minutes. It feels like the hour is getting late on Dickinson's Canucks tenure really quickly, which is too bad because I still think he can be a useful piece. I still like his defensive game, his rangy assertiveness, how disruptive he can be when he's on. I don't know why it hasn't quite worked out here, but I, I do think in the event he shakes loose and free of his contract, which of course would take a buyout or a retained salary transaction, I do still think he can provide value for somebody. I still like him as a player. It's just there's nothing going on there for him. In, on this team. It's it's a similar dynamic with the depth forwards as there is with the depth defensemen, right? Where the cheaper guys have outperformed the guys on the bigger contracts in a lot of respects and demanded more ice time. And you just kind of think, okay, you know, if the Canucks could somehow move the contract of Dickinson and maybe a guy like Tanner Pearson, although I do still like Tanner Pearson as a player as well, and, you know, just clone Mott and Highmore and have two more players like that in the lineup, plus the extra salary cap flexibility, you feel like they'd be in a better spot. Those guys are maybe more of a stylistic fit for the Jim Rutherford front office as well. And it's a very similar story on the back end with what Kyle Burroughs and Luke Shen have done as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We will continue to break down what's going on at Canucks practice. Plus, yeah, JT Miller, Brock Besser's names, they're still out there in trade speculation. What does the future hold for both of those players? Elliot Friedman touched on it a little bit on 32 Thoughts. We'll play you some of that. Also, as a reminder, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more to come on the other side. It is the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. .ca. We are still here live at Rogers Arena watching the Canucks practice after their, uh, let's just put it, interesting 5-4 win over San Jose in San Jose last night. We'll bring you any other tidbits, news, or notes from practice as they develop. But, Drancer, I did want to get back in to the the JT, the ongoing JT Miller conversation. And, by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Get your thoughts in as well because – We've gone through kind of this this transformation on the uh, you know the overarching JT Miller discourse here in Vancouver. The, the conversation has kind of gone from you know what should the Canucks get back, what will the Canucks get back when they inevitably decide to trade him, to now, well, will the Canucks actually trade J- JT Miller? Is that what they want to do, or is it more likely that they try to find a way to lock up JT Miller long term? And I think that's a very interesting shift in the discussion, and I want to play. This back from Elliot Friedman. This is from the 32 Thoughts podcast released this morning with Friedman and Jeff Merrick. And here's what Elliot Friedman had Not to say about yet. where things sit with the Canucks and their plans on JT Miller. And Brock Besser. And is he... Vancouver fans saying... I mean, is he the... 
We got that, Faber? Faber's too busy deleting all his tweets. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Faber's, doing more, Faber's doing more cloak and dagger social he's, media work. He's going to be an amateur scout in a uh, market that has no amateur teams. Abbotsford, that's what I heard. That's what I heard, Faber. Uh, all right. Well, while Faber, uh, <laughs> well, Faber works to con- neither confirm nor deny. I'm not. Wa- I'm not doing any of that. I'm not doing. Any of that. <laughs> we love you, bud. Hard to be an amateur scout in a pro league. It is indeed. Yeah, for sure. Yes, it absolutely is. I got uh, your clip yeah. for you guys. Let me. I'll set this up. Here, here okay. you go. Here's your Friedman clip talking about <laughs> JT Miller and Brock Besser. We love you. Your babes. thoughts on Vancouver and Brock Besser, and is he? I mean, is he the obvious candidate? Or is there someone that we're missing here? Well, look, I reported a while ago that I'm not convinced they want to trade Miller. And I do still think that. It's just that I think they really like Miller. I think they like what he brings to their group. He's like an ornery guy and on the ice. And, you know, you need people like that. Players like Miller, he can play center. He can play the wing. He drags you into the fight. I'm not convinced that that's the guy they want to move. And I haven't been convinced that that's the guy they wanted to move for some time. They always get asked about him. And they know that that means he's got value. But I think they also look at their team and say, if we lose him, you know, what do we have? And it's the kind of player that when you lose, you're going to have to look for a long time to try to replace him. So I'm not convinced that that's what they want to do. Now, the Besser thing, I think there's definitely something to it. The Garland thing, I definitely think there's something to it. You know, some of their other players, I definitely think there's something to it. But one of the things that I really do believe is that the Canucks have to get their head around what Miller's future is going to be. Because I think they sit there and they say, we could trade them. We could keep them. And they're also looking at what does it cost us to sign them? And I think that's going to be a huge number. And that's the key. That's Elliot Friedman again on the 32 Thoughts podcast with Jeff Merrick talking about the Canucks' current thinking, what he thinks uh, their position on JT Miller and the, you know the dilemma, the question of whether to trade him or whether to try to lock him up. Long term. And, you know, on the face of it, Drancer, and we get this text in a lot, right? JT Miller's been their best forward. He's only 28. It's not like he's ancient. Why is there this rush to trade him? And on the surface, I do understand that reasoning. And and Friedman laid out a lot of it in that clip as well. But, you know, we had this conversation with Brock Besser yesterday. How do you win a Brock Besser trade if you're the Canucks right now? And it's not easy because of his contract status, because of some of the things you'd have to likely take back in order to make it work. It's not necessarily an easy task. And the way I would look at the JT Miller conversation right now is not how do you win a JT Miller trade? Because I think that's relatively straightforward, right? You get some premium assets back. How do you win a JT Miller extension if you're the Vancouver Canucks? Because that that what Friedman said at the end there, that it's going to take a huge number, he believes, to re-sign Miller. That's the key to understanding all of the should the Canucks trade JT Miller conversation. Because everything we've heard from Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin has emphasized the importance of creating salary cap flexibility and salary cap space for this Vancouver Canucks team in order to take that next step forward. And if you're going to commit a huge number, to use Elliot Friedman's words, 
to extend JT Miller long-term, I don't know how you create the requisite cap space to do all the other things and all the other improvements that you have to do on this team. And it becomes very difficult for me to, to think about how this team can win a JT Miller extension, given what it's likely going to take to sign him. Well, you also have to consider that, you know, JT Miller is going to be 30 years old before his current contract expires. So you're buying all age 30 seasons. Now, Miller's a smart player. He's got a lot of old man skills, by which I mean skills that I don't think will depreciate super rapidly. It's not like he relies solely on being a speedster right. or a physical bull, though Though he can be both. It's It's... You know, the playmaking, it's the intelligence, it's the, you know, Elliot used the word ornery, I'll use the word irascible, it's that it's that swagger that he has and, and carries himself with at all moments. Now, I think JT Miller is a really good bet to provide something like $7 million at least in, in real value in the first three years of his extension. And thereafter, I think, you you know, it's a, it's a little bit dicier, you're looking at five-ish million uh, in value. The problem is, is I think he's at least a $7.5 million player, probably an $8 million player on an extension. And I think the moment you sign it, you're not getting surplus value. Right now, the Canucks are probably getting $8.5 million worth of value from JT Miller at $5.25 million. And, you know, if you sign him to a deal, by the time he's in the third year of that deal and he's 33 years old, like Pedersen's 26 and Quinn Hughes is 25. So how do you win the JT Miller extension? I, I don't think you do, to be totally honest, unless you clear a lot of other space elsewhere and find other ways to be efficient so that you take advantage of the first three years of Miller's deal. And by take advantage, I mean our winning playoff games every season, our winning playoff rounds at least two of the three years, right? Like, that's how you win it. it it's you build the rest of the team up to get there. And the problem that I have there is how do you get to that point how do you create a brighter day for this team if you're not trading your valuable assets for pieces that can help you down the line? Like, that's what I don't understand. There's no other pieces in this lineup that have JT Miller-like trade value. So I, I just, I struggle to understand how you get to where you want to be with no draft picks, with no cap flexibility, with you know, <laughs> no prospects and a team that's just not good enough as it stands without trading some of the good players for futures. Like, I just don't understand it. And maybe maybe our listeners can explain it to me. Maybe maybe the bet is is that what the team has done under Boudreaux is closer to the an approximation of who they really are. I think that's a bet this team will lose if that's the bet they make. But I just don't understand. Like, I just don't understand how you get from where we are now to where this team wants to be without moving some value for cap space and futures. I just don't understand it. Jamie, I just don't. And perhaps someone can explain it to me, but until I understand what the reasoning is, I just don't see that path. And, and all of that said, I don't want to get in the business of criticizing a club for moves it hasn't made. No, of course. <laughs> and this team, like the biggest transaction of the Jim Rutherford era to this point is like Justin Dowling on waivers. Right? So I think we need to calm down, right? There's this there's this rush to know what they're going to do and chart it out and you know, I've made my five point plan and we've talked ad nauseum about trade chips and prospects and futures and what this club should do and what the club will do and what the latest reports are, but 
realistically, this has been a pretty conservative start to Rutherford's tenure, right? He averaged a trade per month in in Pittsburgh. He's now in his third month in Vancouver, and we've yet to see a major transaction. Again, uh, a one-way, two-year contract for Justin Dowling on waivers being the biggest move to this point in the Rutherford era. We'll have to see what type of fireworks come. I, I expect this team will make significant moves. I think they should make significant moves. I think they should make them proactively. Right, I think they should be ahead of the game on that score, uh, particularly um, as a result of where they stand. You know, I mean, I, we got a text in saying if they beat Anaheim on Saturday and the Kraken on Monday, they're really in the playoff race. It's like maybe, but they're still twelfth in the division right yeah. now. You know, like they're in not the conference. Yeah, they're 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 close to being close to being close. Right, there's still so many hoops to jump through before you're really in the thick of it. Um, I think as you sort of look forward, now that this management team seems to be pretty close to finished and, and constructed, um, you know, I, I think you just have to be mindful of how you get better first and foremost. More more than being like, where are we if we lose this guy? It, where are you in three years if you keep him? And and that to me is, you know, those are the two sides of the coin. And, and I don't envy Jim Rutherford and company uh, for the decisions that they'll have to make. But I just don't see how you're better if you maintain this group. I just don't. And to your point about, okay, let's not let's not prejudge that because I have seen that reaction on social media, right? Like, oh, this is this is More exactly what same. Yeah, this is exactly what Jim Betting would have done. They're going to keep JT Miller. We obviously do not know what the Canucks are going to do with JT Miller yet. And on that point, I'll say two things. One is that if I was in Jim Rutherford's position, I, I I don't think there's anything wrong with the new Canucks management group taking a long look at every possible permuta- permutation and scenario of what to do with this roster, right? Like, I think it's totally appropriate to do the exercise of, okay, I know there's a lot of reasons why we might want to trade JT Miller, but what would it look like if we decided to keep him? Because we really like the player. So let's game that out and see if we think we can make it work for the team. I have no problem with doing that. That's a, that's an exercise that's completely appropriate to do. So maybe that's just what they're working through, right? They're working through all the different scenarios and they're trying to see how they can make them work. The other thing is going into this trade deadline season now, and we talked about the message discipline from the Vancouver Canucks, mm-hmm. you're not going to go out there and say, you know what? Yeah, we'd really like to move JT Miller, right? Yeah, JT Miller's a player we think we have to trade at this deadline. That, that's not smart messaging if you're trying to kind of get the most for JT Miller from other teams at the deadline. So you have to you have to kind of read between the lines and everything we're hearing from insiders, from Canucks management as well, and think about, okay, how does this kind of help their posture and help what totally. they're trying to do and in relation helps, to other teams? And nothing helps their posture more than, you know, we want to keep this guy. Exactly. Right? I mean... Hey, no. we're dead serious about extending him. We really love him. He bra- yeah. You know what I mean? That That's all information you want to get out there to potentially drive up the price. 100%. So, they're, they're, you know, take everything with a grain of salt, especially at deadline season and draft season, right? The, that's, when, that's when the lies get told. Um, but, but, you know, I do, think the, I do think the club is truthful, and I do think it's legitimate when they say there's no rush. Right? I mean, you do have time. You have time on Besser. You have time on Miller. You have time on Garland. All three of those guys are under team control. The only urgent situation is Tyler Mons, and that's a much lower leverage decision for the franchise overall, even though Tyler Mott's a pretty important player to what this team you know, does at the moment and may want to do in the future. So, you know, I do think we need to, especially at this time of year, stay a little bit calm. I don't see a route to extending JT Miller and making this team into what I hope it becomes for the sake of Canucks fans and the, 
the people who I'm close to who really care about the results um, that this team sort of racks up over the years. But, but you know, I'm I'm not going to lose my lose my hat one way or another. Especially especially even if even if the Canucks go through the deadline without making significant moves, right? If, say the Canucks go on a nice little tear here, yeah. right? Say they continue to play decently well, better than they have the last 16, um, maybe not quite as well as they played over the entirety of Boudreaux's 25 games, but something in between. So like, let's say like 620, right? And they've got, they're in with they're in with a hope. And all they do is they deal Mott, right? Like that's it. They deal Mott, they get some picks, and that's it. Otherwise they, they stand pat. To me, that won't be certainly an ideal situation. I think you want to lock in more cap flexibility than that for next season as proactively as you can. But it's not to me going to be something where I'm crushing new management either if that's if that's all that uh, they accomplish uh, prior to the deadline because they do have some time. They do have some time. Moves can be easier to make in the offseason. That's particularly true for a guy like Miller who's got a $5 million cap hit and this season and next. He's not expiring, right? You're, you, 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 there's no point in retaining salary in that deal because the benefit is getting the cap space. If that's a deal that happens in the offseason – um, or, or if the club waits to do the majority of their business in the offseason, particularly considering that in Miller's case and in Brock Besser's case, there's very little benefit to either player to engage the club now. I mean, Miller's not even eligible Miller's to sign. Miller's not technically allowed to, right? Well, you're allowed to, but you're not okay. eligible to yeah. sign it until after July 13th this season. Um, and, in, and in Besser's case, there's just no, there's no advantage to having those talks now. You have time, use it. If the Canucks end up taking a relatively conservative approach to the deadline, if they end up accomplishing, you know, just a mod extension and or trade, again, I'm not going to crush them. But I do think I do think the best route forward is to carve out as much cap flexibility in land, as much weaponry to improve, because right now this team's hands are tied like they, there's just not much that they can do. Uh, and that's and that's sort of what concerns me about the idea of keeping everyone everything intact it, it just because you know this team has been hard to see clearly right they were better than they were in the first 25 games they're not as good as they've been in the 25 games since there's a middle ground for this team one that i suspect will will become apparent over the latter 32 games we will see who this team is they will show us who they are i suspect what we see is something we're not going to like and you know, as this club navigates that, as they chart a path forward, I just don't see how keeping the status quo is A, the assignment, right? A, the assignment, or B, the best course forward if this team's going to get to where we all hope it gets to in well, the years to Well, come. and I think that's part of the part of the reason we see the reaction from certain fans when you, the possibility of keeping JT Miller comes up is because, you know, Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin, without going into specifics of what they want to do with the roster, they have talked about you know, big decisions to make and, mm-hmm. and and how things need to improve. So if you hear that one part of the status quo is going to be maintained, potentially, like JT Miller, it naturally leads to the question of, okay, well, what else is going to change? What are other realistic options? And this unsigned text comes in, trading just Miller alone does not allow this team to be playoff competitive in a year or two. He's your top forward. It's not even close. You will also not be able to replace Miller's production even via trade. The best move is to trade a secondary piece. He says either Bo or Brock, who will get a significant return but will not disrupt your roster as much as a Miller trade. Trading Miller puts you three to four years away, so at that point you may as well trade Bo and Brock too. And the thing is, okay, so he mentions either Horvat or Brock Besser. So 
Brock Besser is not getting you near the return that JT Miller is going to get at this deadline because of his contract situation, right? So right there, yeah, you're freeing up some salary cap space for next year if you make a Brock Besser trade. But in terms of adding futures, picks, prospects, young roster players, all of that, it's not going to be close to what you would get for a potential JT Miller trade. Plus, of course, Brock Besser is younger, and we talked about it on the show yesterday, probably at a low point of his value right now, whereas you look at JT Miller and he's uh, you know near the peak of his market value around the NHL. Horvat is the other name that comes up, right? Because okay, if you play J- if you if you sign JT Miller, you're probably comfortable playing him at center. Does that make Bo Horvat more expendable? Horvat absolutely would be incredibly in demand around the league if the Canucks wanted to go down that route. But again, that that you're trading a key piece of the team who's also your captain, by the way. So that is in fact incredibly disruptive, I think, to the team's roster. Straight away, Bo Horvat, who's younger who's likely to be cheaper on an extension or on a more team-friendly deal if he does sign an extension than JT Miller, it's not clear to me that, oh, well, that just keep JT Miller and sign Bo Horvat. That potential road comes with enormous complications as well if that's what they want to explore. For sure. Uh, every path that you take has a butterfly effect elsewhere on the roster, right? Uh, at the end of the day, in a hard-cap league, you are fitting puzzle pieces together, right? And the problem... The fundamental problem this team has to solve, right, is that they're not good enough at the NHL level, right? And I keep listing these four things. Not good enough at the NHL level, no prospects, no cap flexibility, not their full arsenal of draft picks. And I keep doing it for a reason because all of those things, right, are in service of winning games, obviously, right? Like, all of those things are in service of winning games. Draft picks are the currency with which you can staff your organization or or pay to acquire players in trades. Prospects is what's coming. What you can realistically hope for in the near future based on what what you already have in-house. And the Canucks don't have enough in that area. How good you are on the ice, obviously that matters the most, by far. And, and for me, and, and I think this is where some of the arguments are arising in the Vancouver market, and probably some of the tough decisions that the organization is making itself, is how good is this team? Right, and, and I think that's something you have to drill down on because, again, I think we've seen basically two variations on, on this season so far. One is well beneath their level. One is well above their level. And the last 32 games are going to tell you a ton. However, if the Canucks use the deadline to lock in some cap flexibility, which is the fourth part of this equation, and is the crucial like lubricant that allows you to improve, right? You, you, without cap flexibility, you cannot improve. You cannot improve your team. Um, you're, you're in problem-solving mode, which is totally fine if you're a year-after-year contender. That's the game if you're a year-over-year contender. But if you're this team, if you're a fringe playoff team at best, right, and really on the fringes at the moment, having no cap flexibility is death. Is death in this league. So for me, for me, as I look through this, right, I think the major priority of this deadline should be locking in as much cap flexibility as you can for the summer so that you can take advantage of what opportunities arise. But if this organization decides that they need more time to understand this team's level, right, I can see taking a conservative approach being at least justifiable, if not necessarily what I'd like to see from an organization that too often has taken the path of least resistance <laughs> in terms of pursuing short-term ends, right? And and that's the other sort of concern I have. This club's changed leaders at all levels of the organization over the course of the past three months. But 
a thing to remember about institutions, whether it's a franchise, whether it's your place of work, whether it's anything, any institution, whether it's government. You can change leaders, but they have their own sense of momentum, right? I'm concerned a little bit that what we see at the deadline will just be a continuation of what this franchise has shown us over the course of the past decade. And that, my friends, is just a path to persistent, perpetual mediocrity. And that's the thing that I, I kind of can't abide, that kind of makes me nauseous the, to even think about. The thing that makes me less concerned about that is it doesn't match what we've heard from Jim Rutherford or Patrick Ovin, I don't think. Because Jim Rutherford has said openly, sometimes you have to take a step back to take a major step forward. And that, to me, is the biggest messaging difference between Jim Rutherford and the prior regime. But he has also said that if you make the playoffs, anything, yep, can, anything happen. can happen. So, That's true. So I think in a lot of ways, That's the, true. The, the through line to understand some of what the Canucks, like when Patrick Alvin appeared with us uh, or, or on this program earlier this week, right? He both talked about the chance that this group has and the credit they deserve for giving themselves that chance and needing to keep his eye on the future. Jim Rutherford talked about needing yep. to keep his eye on the future, but also... If you win, you can get in. So in a lot of ways, if you want to draw a through line, what makes the most sense through what Canucks management has said publicly over the course of a, a pretty active media week, as Patrick Alvin's sort of been rolled out both on broadcast, on our station, with Donnie and Dolly today, what's the through line? This club wants to keep their options open, right? They are, they are very keen in not committing themselves to a course of action one way or another. And that's an interesting place to be in. Because we're left guessing and discussing ad nauseum, of course, yeah. what to expect from this club. The one thing we expect from this club, though, they'll play in front of a full building That's tomorrow. Right. Let's, let's go. Let's go. It's going to be a fun night out. And the Ducks, of course, not an easy opponent, but a crucial game for this team to win. And really glad that the Kraken game as well. I, I know that, that rivalry has lost a little bit of its luster given the season that a Seattle bit. is My having. Goodness. But that the fact that the Kraken will be here in front uh, of a full crowd on Monday is extremely exciting as Jared well. McCann revenge game. That's right. That's right. Enjoy the games over the weekend, over the long weekend with Family Day on Monday. We'll be back on Tuesday to talk about it all. More Canucks talk uh, coming up and a whole lot more on the People Show with Bick and Randeep. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I mean, I was pulling my hair out. And the problem that I have there is how do you get to that point – 